Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, probably not a psalm you've read lately, I'm guessing. Uh, very short psalm, won't take us long to read this, just a few verses. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs nearby, and this psalm is on page 298, 298, Psalm 131. Well, we're talking a lot about New Year's Day today for obvious reasons. Um, could be that this is a time where you're beginning to think about New Year's resolutions, or maybe you've already been thinking about that in the past week or so, and you've got aspirations and, and plans and, and goals set forth for the new year, perhaps, uh, maybe having to do with your dieting, or maybe exercise, or maybe a, a reading plan, or financial plans, could be a number of things. So you kind of get it in your head, I'm going to do this, and you, you shoot high, you aim high, and I think we all know what it's like, right, with New Year's resolutions. We, we aim high and we find that we don't always accomplish all that we set out to do. I'm told like at the YMCA in January, there's a lot of people there. <laughs> but by around February or so, eh, not so many as people are trying to fulfill their New Year's resolutions. I, I, I want to say just by way of comfort, you know, if you have a New Year's resolution about, um, you know, diet or exercise and you don't meet that, that's not a sin, Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's not necessarily something you should feel guilty about. What, what's really happening very often when we fail to meet our New Year's resolutions is that we're being simply confronted with our limitations as human beings. We're being confronted with our, the limits of our energy levels and what we know and where we can be and the gifts that we possess and the time that we have. And sometimes we just overestimate these things. And we're often surprised that we're not able to do what we thought we were able to do. Friends, this is part of what it is to be human, part of what it is to be a human being. And so we got one last sermon in this series on being human that we've been considering through the Advent season as we think of um, Jesus being human, born on Christmas Day. But part of being human is being limited. And an important question that we all need to deal with, and that, that you need to deal with, and me too, is this. Can you embrace your limitations and be okay with them, and be content with them? That's what we're going to consider here today in this sermon series. Um, plans moving forward. Brandon Buller is going to be preaching next Sunday, so looking forward to hearing Brandon. Sunday after that, January 15, I think it is, uh, we will resume the series on Mark the servant king. But today, we're looking here at Psalm 131. Again, this very kind of brief psalm. It's called a song of ascent. That means that it was a song or a psalm that the pilgrims would recite on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. Song of ascent. And um, this might be one of the shortest psalms in the Bible, but it gives to us perhaps one of the hardest lessons to learn. So, if you're able to stand, please do so, and let me read the word to us, Psalm 131. <clears throat> o Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great 
and too marvelous for me. For I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Holy Spirit, would you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Be seated. <clears throat> well, this is a psalm of, of David, uh, King David, who wrote a large number of psalms, and I just want to um, explore two things, two main points, two main thoughts from this short psalm this morning. And the first one is this, particularly maybe as we're thinking about the year ahead, I want to encourage you to do the best with what God has given you. Okay, so if we look at verse 1 here, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, this first point, I'm really going to be talking more about what this doesn't mean rather than what it does mean, because I think it's possible that this passage could be misunderstood as we read this first verse in particular. It could maybe be taken as if David is saying something like, hey, you know, don't aim too high in, in this life. Don't aspire to anything very, very great. Don't, don't try too hard. There are marvelous and great things out there, but other people do those things. It's probably not for you, so just settle for mediocrity. I mean, that's one way this passage could possibly be misunderstood, and I want to make sure that's not the way we understand it this morning. There is an impression given in some Christian circles, and I don't think it's a problem here at, at New Life among us, but it, it is an idea I hear from time to time, and the idea is, is like this. It's like, hey, we're, we're going to heaven one day, and in heaven everything's going to be perfect, and we're going to be with Jesus forever, and that's a wonderful thing, but because we're thinking about heaven, therefore what we do on this earth doesn't really matter. I mean, why bother trying to accomplish anything on this earth when all of these things on the earth are just going to be burned and incinerated, and we're going to be in heaven for eternity. Our time on earth is short, so, you know, why, why try to, why really work hard at being a good musician or a good soccer player or a, a good scientist? Why, why work at that? It's all going to be over soon. I mean, have you known people who have thought like that? And maybe, maybe you've thought like that. You know, this is a major critique of the Christian faith, actually, that those who aren't believers sometimes bring this, this critique. There's a guy named Rousseau, who's a very famous philosopher, French philosopher, who was part of the French Revolution, which occurred shortly after the American Revolution. French Revolution, a very anti-Christian uh, movement in France. And Rousseau's critique of Christianity was this. He said, for Christians, the essential thing is to get to heaven. And then he says this, and for them, this short life counts for too little in their eyes. For Christians, according to Rousseau, this short life that we have accounts for, for too little. We, we don't seek to really to accomplish anything. So the, the first uh, point here that I want to hone in on is to dispel this notion and to make sure it's understood that this is not what David is saying. And the reason why I know that this is not what David is saying is because this is not what the rest of the Bible teaches. 
This is not an excuse to just bail out and withdraw and, and give up. After all, remember, who was David? He was a king. And not just a king, but the greatest king, likely, in Israel's history. So let, let me just, kind of from other passages in the Scripture, just try to affirm this to you, what the Bible says about doing the best you can with what God has given you. So, for instance, it really it all begins back in uh, creation. In the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we have something that's called the creation mandate. And here's what God says in Genesis 1, 28. God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. That, that doesn't sound like withdrawing, checking out or bailing out to me. That, that sounds like getting busy to develop what God has created. That's what is being taught in the creation mandate. It's this fascinating idea that God has created the universe, and then He, he kind of delegates to us the responsibility of continuing the process of creation throughout history to bring creation to maturity, to build cities and harvest crops and invent the light bulb and make beautiful paintings and beautiful music. These are implications that flow from this creation mandate. A guy named Al Walters says it like this, if we see that human history and the unfolding of culture and society are integral to creation and its development, then we'll be much more open to the positive possibilities for service to God in such areas as politics and film, computer technology and business administration, economics and skydiving. It does not, if God does not give up on the works of His hands, we may not either. In other words, for the Christian, this short life does count for something, and it's something that we should take very seriously. Uh, another example, moving on from the creation mandate, you remember King Solomon in the Old Testament? King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4, what we learn about him is that he knew 3,000 proverbs, he wrote 1,005 songs, he was knowledgeable about trees, birds, reptiles, fish. It says he was wiser than all other men on the earth at the time. And then as we go forward to 1 Kings 10, remember Queen of Sheba? She hears about Solomon and travels just to be in his presence. And in 1 Kings 10, it says King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Again, that does not sound to me like someone who has checked out or withdrawn from being involved in the world in which God has placed him. Now, of course, not all of us are Solomon, not all of us are kings, not all of us are gifted or called in the same way that he was, but if we think of Solomon as one who wrote the Proverbs, which do apply to all of us, we will see Proverbs like this, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. In other words, be diligent, work hard. Proverbs 18.15 has to do more with learning. The intelligent heart acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks knowledge. This is a good thing 
to work hard, to be ambitious, to grow in knowledge and understanding. Perhaps the the best uh, example of the point here that I'm making about doing the best you can with what God has given you is the parable of the talents. Do you remember that from Matthew 25, where Jesus tells this parable of a man who gives to his servants a certain number of talents? And so he gives to one guy five talents, and then we learn that he goes out and he made five more talents with the five talents that he was given. He invested it and made more. And then there was another guy. He had two talents. And the parable says that he went and invested the two talents and made two talents more. And there's no indication that the guy who made five talents more is any better than the guy who only made two talents. What was important is that both of them took what God had given them and did the best they could with them. But then the last person is one who was given just one talent, and he didn't do anything with it. He hid it. He said, I was fearful of you, and he made nothing from that. And then in the parable, Jesus says that the man comes to him and says, you wicked and slothful servant. You didn't do the best with what God gave you. Now, friends, let me be clear here. We're not talking about earning salvation to go to heaven, all right? You don't get to heaven by doing the best with what God has given you. No, we already talked about that, right? Salvation is all by grace. It's by the work of Jesus, not by your works for Him. But nonetheless, as we live in this world, these are the tasks that we're called to do, to work hard, to learn, to be involved. So let's not misunderstand what is being said here in Psalm 131. This is something I've been thinking about lately, Um, a a question, and and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this after the service if you want to share them with me, but I I wonder why it is that when you consider like some of the highest offices in in our land, like the Supreme Court, members of the Supreme Court, or those who win Nobel Prizes, or even the the greatest athletes and, and musicians, why are so few of them evangelical Christians? Why don't Christians occupy those places. Now, I, I know there, there are, are Catholics in, in some of those positions and, you know, perhaps professed believers, but boy, it seems like there is an absence of an evangelical presence in these places. And, you know, it could be, well, evangelicals are a smaller percentage of the population, so, you know, it would make sense. That, that could be. Or it could be that evangelicals have been somehow sending this message that the short, this short life counts for, for too little, and we have neglected doing the best we can with what God has given us. So I say all of that by way of holding in balance what we're going to talk about next. Do the best with what God has given you, but the second thing to consider is this, seek to be content with what God has not given you. Okay? So, let's look back at the text in verse 1. David says this, he says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. Uh, The NIV says, my my heart is not proud, Uh, my eyes are not haughty. Uh, That that is, I, I, I don't overvalue myself and I don't undervalue others. 
my heart and myself is not lifted up thinking I'm so great. My eyes are not raised too high as I look out among others thinking poorly of them and greatly of myself. In other words, what David is saying here is that he has learned humility. Humility. There is a difference, friends, between pursuing great things, which is what we just talked about in point one, and wanting to be perceived as great. Those are different. C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this well. He says this, it's perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, then that would take all the fun out of it, (laughs) then you're going wrong. You know, if it's all about being better than others, that, that's a kind of a pride. It doesn't mean you don't aspire to do great things, but if all you're aspiring to is to look great in the eyes of others, that's, that's pride. That's what Lewis is saying. And this is what David has come to understand is, is a problem of pride, and he has departed from that. Perhaps he had a problem with that earlier in his life, but he's reached a place where he has repented of this Pride, And so this humility now in David leads him to say, in the second part of verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Basically, what he's saying here is, you know, as I've, as I've lived my life, David would say, if I can paraphrase, some things are just beyond me. Some things are too difficult for me to grasp. I don't have to have everything figured out. I don't have to have an answer for everything. It's like David has kind of gotten to a point of contentment with that. In other words, he is embracing a certain limitation about himself. His his inability to answer all the deep questions and to look smart in front of people. The thing in this case that God has not given to David is answers answers to questions like, why does God choose some people for salvation and not others? Why, if God is so good, does He allow so much sorrow and pain and evil in this world? Why does a good God allow the Holocaust? Why does a good God allow people to be enslaved? Why does a good God allow children to have cancer? Why, if God loves me personally, why has He denied me my most cherished wishes and desires? And why has He taken from me those things that I have valued the most in my life? Spouse, children, success, reputation. Why? What David is saying is, you know what? There are some things that are too great and too marvelous for me. There are things that are beyond my understanding that God has not revealed to me. Remember Job said basically the same thing. The whole book about Job is Job kind of complaining and wrestling with the evil and the suffering that he has had to deal with. And then you get to the end of Job, and he says this. He's speaking to God, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I was speaking out of ignorance is what Job is saying. And that's what David is coming to grips with. There are just some things that are just beyond me. I'm not going to have the answers. 
and I'm okay with that. I mean, have you gotten to, to that point in your life? You know, where you're okay with the unanswered questions? Does this mean you stop looking for answers? No. I mean, okay, right? I just want to refer you back to the first point. <laughs> Remember what Proverbs said about seeking knowledge. Yeah, we, we, ought, we ought to seek, but sometimes we just get to the limits of our abilities, and we have to just content ourselves with what has not been given to us. And this can apply into a lot of other areas of, of our humanity. As David reaches this conclusion that I don't have to know, and perhaps I don't even have the right to know, we can also consider that there are other limitations to our humanity. There are limitations to um, our abilities, our strength, our athletic prowess, our physical appearance, the time that we have, the, the gifts that God has given to us. God chooses how He will gift all the people in His kingdom, and He withholds gifts from many of His people, and it is His right to gift some more than others. Are you okay with that? It takes humility and wisdom to come to this place where we can just accept the fact that God has a right not to give us everything that we want. God is the one who knows all. God is the one who can do all. God is the one who is everywhere present. But that's not you, and that's not me. A guy named Dave Harvey says this, wherever there's a gift, there's a limit. And what I've found is that recognizing the limits of my gifts frees me of the head-banging burden of trying to do something that God hasn't intended for me. Really, I, I hope that this is a relief for you. I hope that this is a comfort for you that there's something very freeing about just accepting your limitations and being content with how God made you and what God called you to do. Because the fact is, you can't fix every problem, and you can't answer every question, and you can't meet every need. But the good news is that there is one who can. And that's what David seems to be kind of where he seems to be finding his contentment. If you look at verse 2, Look at verse 2 here. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. A, a weaned child. A weaned child, we don't really use that term so much anymore, but a weaned child is, is a child who is no longer dependent on, on his mother's milk, but has learned to be content with solid food. And so the picture that David is giving to us here is this child who has been now weaned off the mother's milk, but then when the child is brought to the mother, the child is no longer clamoring and demanding and throwing a tantrum about getting the milk that the child wants because the child is content with the food that he has had. And so now when the child is brought to the mother, he's not coming to the mother to get anything from the mother. He's just coming to be with his mother and rest in the presence of his mother, like a weaned child with its mother. No more demanding, no more protest, just rest. And this is what David is saying. David is saying, I've, I've reached that point in my life where I don't have to go to God and demand things from him. I don't have to look to him to make me number one. I don't have to go to Him and expect Him to answer all my questions. I can go to God for God. I can go to God and just be with Him and rest in His presence. 
That's what David has reached, and that's something that we should all aspire to do. I think one of the the keys to kind of getting to this place is to realize, friends, that your life is not for your glory, but for God's glory. It's so that you would know Him and please Him so that He might be exalted in your life. If, if that's the place you have reached in your life, then you can come to a place where you say, okay, what, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I'm content with whatever you give to me, with wherever you place me, with whatever you call me to do, with whatever you give to me, and with whatever you choose not to give to me. Because this is not about me. It is about you, O oh God. And that's that's David's place. It's like John the Baptist. Remember when John was, he had all these disciples, and, and you know, he's kind of a big name. People were coming to him, and then Jesus came on the scene, and his disciples came to John, and they said, hey, John, everybody's going after Jesus. You know, like, aren't you threatened by that? Now Jesus is popular, and you're not, John. And remember what John says? He must increase, and I must decrease. He was content. If God was glorified, John was content. So, what what does this psalm uh, teach us about Jesus? Well, here's something I think is very fascinating about the incarnation. Again, what we celebrate at, at Christmas, God taking on a human body in the person of Jesus. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. But think about that. When God took on a human body, do you know what? He took on limitations. Because if God exists in a body, what that means is that God Himself in the person of Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Now, God spiritually, God's Spirit, Father, is is omnipresent everywhere. But in the incarnation, in Jesus, He's in a physical body. Physical bodies can only be in one place at one time. God limited Himself. Living, existing in the person of Jesus, he, He needed to eat. He got hungry. He, he had to sleep. I mean, there's even a time in the Gospels where Jesus is asked when the last day is going to come, and Jesus says, I don't know. I mean, that raises lots of questions, right? <laughs> but it's in His human nature. He, he, he didn't know. There was limitations. God took on limitations for your salvation and for mine. Because here's what it says in in Philippians chapter 2. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's, That's limitations he's taking on there. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, a human body. He humbled himself. It takes a humble God to take on limitations by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in the end, Jesus limited himself in the sense that it was not his will that he desired to accomplish, but the Father's will. And the Father's will was that he was going to go to a cross and die for sinners. What an amazing thing. Jesus, equal with God, sets aside the glory of being God. He didn't set aside His divinity, but He set aside the glory that He might otherwise receive and took the form of a servant and submitted Himself to the Father in such a way that it wound up in His death on a cross. And so Kevin DeYoung, I think, puts it very well as we sum this up. 
Even Jesus didn't do it all. <laughs> Think of that for you who just want to do everything, want to accomplish everything and meet every need. Look, Jesus in His human body didn't do it all. He didn't meet every need. In His earthly ministry, He, he left people waiting in line to be healed. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training and only three years in ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything God asked him to do. That's the important thing, doing what God has asked you to do. And that's what Jesus did. He did everything that God asked him to do, and that's what qualifies him to be our Savior. Because the chief thing that God asked him to do was to give up his life and to be resurrected from the dead. So we can take comfort, I think. I think perhaps this helps us accept our, our limitations if we think that Jesus himself was, was limited. And so in this coming year, friends, let me just reiterate, do the best you can with what God has given you. Set the bar high. Shoot, shoot for the stars, okay? Be, be ambitious. Do great things. Try to do great things. But at the same time, be content with your limitations, with how God has made you. Don't resent that. Receive it in faith. Because after all, you're only human. You're only human. So if in this coming year, you must decrease and Jesus must increase, I would say that that is a very worthy New Year's resolution, not only to pursue, but to fulfill. God, thank you for your word and for this uh, psalm, for the wisdom that is packed in it for us. Oh Lord, would you help us to strike this balance, to be people who aim high for your glory, but a people who are also content with how you made us. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to strike that balance and make this a fruitful year for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.